But let's pray together. Merciful Lord, we pray for those families that were affected by this tragedy. And we pray that you would comfort them and that you would pour out the kind of hope that Peter will mention in our verses from 1 Peter this morning. We pray that you would minister to them in their pain, in their time of need. Lord, we pray for us as Christians that we would have the grace that we need to stand firm. I pray that when our culture demands that we get on board with this uh, approval of sin, that we would refuse, that we would have all of the courage we need to say that we will bow before no other ideology except Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Lord, we pray for our enemies. We recognize that we were once enemies of God, but by grace we have been saved. And Lord, we, we pray for these people. We pray that they would turn, that they would repent, that they would place their faith in Jesus. God, that you would, that you would give them the freedom that your word promises in being called a child of God. And we pray that you would give us the grace that we need to love those who hate us, to pray for our enemies, to bless those who persecute us. And Lord, I stand up here and look out at my brothers and sisters in my church, and I pray on their behalf that your Holy Spirit would minister to them this morning, that your word would encourage them, that the truth would inspire them, that your love would just fill them with joy. Lord, would you bless us as we study your word and we sing praises to your name. In Christ's name, amen. Well, open your Bible with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, and if you don't have a Bible, we really do uh, want you to have one at our welcome table back here. We have some copies that you can pick up and take and keep. You can always look it up on your phone as well. Before we look at the verses that we're going to study this morning, I just want to remind you of a couple of key ideas that Peter has been fleshing out for us that we've touched on as we've made our way through his letter. We encountered these ideas back in verses 1 through 12. And uh, since our verses for today are going to connect with these themes, again, I just want to remind you of them. The first big idea is that Peter has been reminding us of this big arc of God's redemptive plan. The arc of redemptive history that begins from before the foundation of the world and makes its way through the Old Testament prophets and finds its way into the work of Jesus on the cross and then moves into our current time that we live in and ultimately into the final days of eternity. This arc of redemptive history is something that Peter has been pointing us to. You might recall him talking about God's foreknowledge back in verse 2, meaning that before creation, God planned to save people in love. Or verse 3, where God talks about uh, where it talks about God's work in the present as he causes us to be born again as children of God. Or verse 4, that reminds us of the heavenly inheritance that awaits us in the life to come. Or verse 10, that speaks of the Old Testament prophets 
who searched and inquired about this Messiah that would come. So Peter wants us to have a great big picture in our minds of our great big God who is working everything according to his purposes and his plans. John was right on in his prayer moment as he pointed that out to us. Peter sees the activity of God everywhere at work in all things for the children of God, even when something difficult like persecution comes. And that brings us to the second kind of key idea that Peter has already talked about, which is persecution and suffering. It came up in verse 1 when Peter said that he was writing to those elect exiles, the people who are holy strangers, living in a world where they are outcasts, where the world is full of unrighteousness, and yet they are full of holiness, and so they're aliens and strangers. Or again in verse 6, where Peter mentions various trials that Christians will suffer as they make their way through life. Or Peter again alludes to this idea of persecution and suffering in verse 11, when he points to the sufferings of Christ, who is our head and our Lord. For Peter, helping his readers understand the sufferings and the trials that they're going through and encouraging them to keep their faith and to keep going, to press on in hope, their hope that is in God, this is central to his letter. And actually, of course, these two ideas fit together, I think. Because... Isn't it easier to face hardship and suffering and trials and difficulties when you have a deep confidence in the goodness of God, this God who is our great big God with a great big plan? It's an anchor when the waves are overwhelming, when the world demands that you bow before its idols there's courage to be found when we remember that our God is cur- constantly at work, and he is bigger than those idols. And if we can remember this great big arc of salvation, then we can see, even in the midst of this current trial, this current moment of suffering, God has his wise purposes at work in my life, and he's big enough to overcome whatever those difficulties may be. Things are not out of control. Our hope is not foolish. Our future is not uncertain. From eternity past into this present moment and into eternity future, God's love reigns over all of us as children of God. It gives us hope. Now, with those ideas in place, let's read our text this morning. I'm going to focus just on verses 20 and 21, but I want us to go back and read beginning with 17 to get a little bit of the context. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17 says, And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. 
Now, I'm going to warn you up front that my sermon this morning is going to be fairly theological. These verses reveal a lot about who Jesus is, and they offer us a lot to think about concerning the nature of God. A few recent surveys have shown that professing Christians in America have an absolutely abysmal understanding of both Scripture and biblical theology. And that's tragic. Too many people who call themselves Christians don't know their Bible and they don't understand basic theology. That's one of the reasons why our elder team decided to start a podcast. Uh, Shameless plug here. It's called Kohelet, Q-O-H-E-L-E-T, by Maricopa Springs. Our elders are putting this out so that we can help our church grow in their understanding of theology. That's also in that weekly email. If you get our emails, there's a link in there. We encourage you to listen to that. But we refuse to be elders who skip over the deep truths of God's Word just to gather on Sunday and peddle to you some application life hacks or like spiritual best practices. We want you to know God's Word and we want you to know the God who has spoken His Word. We want our church to be sober-minded and to think rightly about God and so that you might have confidence in Him. And to do that, sometimes we do have to wade deep into biblical theology. We have to think hard about uh, difficult things that Scripture teaches to us. So today, we're going to spend quite a bit of my message discussing the theology of the Son of God, Christology, and the theology of the Spirit of God, pneumatology. But we're going to end on a lighter, no less glorious note as we conclude reflecting on the love of God. So back to our text. We're ransomed by God through the precious blood of Jesus. That's verses 18 and 19. Then in verse 20, we are told that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Now we tend to think that Genesis 1-1 is the beginning, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, that is the beginning of time as we know it. That is the beginning, the origin of the material world that we find ourselves living in. That is how the story of the Bible opens on the first page. That is true. But verse 20 reminds us that there was a story before the story, Did you know that there was a beginning before in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth? Before God spoke the material universe into existence and before God made the man in his image and placed him in the garden, before Adam disobeyed God and rebelled in his sin and ate the fruit that God had declared was off limits, plunging all of creation into the darkness of sin and evil. Before all of that, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, determined that he would spill his blood as the precious Lamb of God in order to save us out of our sins. That story was determined before creation began. And we need to reflect on this for a minute because beneath the surface here, Peter is telling us That God founded the world knowing full well the price that he would have to pay in order to do so. Knowing full well that it would end up costing him 
the blood of His precious Son to create the world that He desired to make. Can you imagine that? Let's try and imagine a scenario where you might be in a similar kind of situation for just a moment. Imagine that you're in high school and you're trying to pick your career path and you have this curse or maybe blessing that you could see how the timeline would play out. You could zoom down the arrow of time as you make your career decision and you see that you decide to go to medical school, pretend with me, for seven years. And after medical school and your residency, you have $500,000 in debt. And you go open your medical practice, only to get sued and lose everything, lose your practice and your money and your home as a result, and you end up uh, denied your medical license by the board. And you are thrown out of that practice, and you end up broken, homeless, and unemployable, if you could foreknow all of that ahead of time, would you go down that path? Certainly not, right? Who would want to waste that much time and money? You would probably go be a plumber instead or something like that. And of course my illustration falls flat. It's completely, uh, it falls short. But hopefully it maybe gives us a little bit of perspective concerning God's foreknowledge. Jesus, the Son of God, in full agreement with God the Father and God the Spirit, embarked on this massive creative venture as the outflow of His love, knowing full well that we would ruin it, that we would plunge it into sin. And that he would have to redeem it by his own sacrificial blood. God knew the cost of creating creatures in his image. But in love, he did it anyway. We're going to end our time reflecting on God's love. But how is that for a picture of God's love for you? Jesus was not God's response to man's failure when things didn't go as God planned. Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world as the lamb whose blood would be shed for you. Have you ever questioned God's love for you? How could you? He knew before any of the sin that you have ever done what it would cost him to make you. That he would need to die in order to save you. God knew you before you did any of the wicked deeds that you are so deeply ashamed of, he knew you and he was fully prepared to give himself for your redemption. We are miserable wretches, that is true, and yet we are loved by God from before the foundation of the world. Now, one of the problems that we encounter at this point is that we can't even conceptualize what Peter is teaching us here. When we talk about God foreknowing something, uh, we are dealing with a God who is omnitemporal. We have no frame of reference for a truth like this. See, maybe you know some of these words, that God is omniscient, which means that he's all-knowing. And God is omnipotent, which means that he's all-powerful. And God is omnipresent, which means that he's everywhere. But God is also omnitemporal which is to say that God is present in every moment, 
at every moment, right now, all at the same time. Right now, as you are experiencing this moment, the cross of Christ is right in front of the face of God, and ever it will be. God knows the beginning from the end because he's always present at both the beginning and the end and every moment in between simultaneously and fully. God does not pass through time. Time is a part of the creation that God has made, just like space. And God is outside of his creation. God does act in time the timeline of history as we know it. So we can really and truly say that Jesus Christ was crucified and died in 33 AD at a moment of time. But God in his nature is outside of time. He's not bound by it. It's not even that he can go forward or backward in time, like the movie Back to the Future. Rather, for God, he does not experience time at all. Time does not touch him. It does not affect him. There's no distinction in the experience of God between past, present, and future. Everything is equally present to him, and he experiences no succession of events. Like, if God the Father were talking to God the Spirit in heaven, you would never hear him say something that your children say, and then, and then, and then. I tried hard to find an illustration to help us grasp this idea. I couldn't. It's just so absolutely foreign to our mind. Maybe the closest thing that I could think of, and it's probably stupid, but imagine like a string laid out on your kitchen counter, okay? Like a foot-long string. If the string represents time, you are looking at it. You are outside of it. You could touch it and interact with it at any point. You can see all of it at once. I guess if you wanted to, you could fold it up or ball it up or tie it up. It doesn't really matter. You could just ignore it altogether since it's just a piece of string on the counter and it really means nothing to you. That's kind of, sort of, maybe a tiny bit how God experiences time outside of it, seeing it all at once, with it having no effect on him at all. And so my point here is simply that we cannot think about God as stuck inside of the construct of time since time is part of creation and God is not bound by it. Now, where this really begins to become important for us is the second half of verse 20. We're told that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Now, these are the last times you are living in them. And for your sake, God humbled himself and stepped into time as a man in order that we might see God and be saved from our sins. Man, that should humble you. That should lead you to repentance and faith. That this omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient, omnitemporal God would step into this timeline, that you might see God, that God might be made manifest for your sake. Now, because it's impossible for us to conceive of this being, this God who is all of these omni things, 
And especially because it's difficult or impossible for us to conceive of a God who is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all through human history, people have made this grave error of saying, we can't think about God, that's too difficult, so let's make him more explainable. I forget who said the joke, but there was a comedian, I think, who said, God made man in his image, and man has been returning the favor ever since. It's hard to not think about God in human terms. Now, the reason I had us read the Nicene Creed is because that document took many theologians many hundreds of years, almost 400 years, hundreds of theologians labored and labored over the text of Scripture to try and define who Jesus is as God and man and who God is as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 400 years of hard work to explain the Trinity because God is so above and beyond what we could ever think of Him. And still to this day, many cults who claim to use the Bible as their source of revelation reject the Trinitarian God who is one God in three persons. So the Mormons, we have many of them here in Maricopa, the Jehovah's Witnesses, maybe they've come to your door. They're tragic examples of this. They claim, no, the Trinity does not exist. There is one God, and the one God made a man named Jesus, who is a lesser God, created by God as the Son of God. That is heresy. It's unbiblical. Mormons are not Christians, nor are Jehovah's Witnesses. They may use the Bible, but they do not know the God that the Bible reveals. Look what Peter says about Jesus in verse 20. He does not say that Jesus was foreknown, befo- foreknown before the foundation of the world and was made in the last times for your sake. No, Peter says that Jesus was made manifest in the last times for your sake. The Son of God, Himself one with the Father and the Spirit, the omnitemporal, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent God, revealed Himself and was made manifest. The glory of God shone in the person of Jesus Christ. Yet while remaining God, He became true man. The eternal Son of God became the incarnate Son of God without changing or diminishing His nature in the slightest. And like a sacrificial lamb, without spot or blemish, He bled and died for you, for me. Now that too is a statement that supports a statement that Peter makes which supports the perfect nature of Jesus as eternal God and not a created being as the Mormons claim because to an infinitely holy God any offense against him is infinitely offensive. You may like to think of yourself as you know a mostly good person you're just guilty of a few screw-ups here and there. Well, those offenses against an infinite God have an infinite weight to them. It's kind of like this. If I were to put a five-gallon bucket of water up here with a spigot 
and offer you a drink from it. But before I offered you the drink, I just took a, a dropper of raw sewage water and just put like two drops in there and mixed it up. Anybody thirsty? Right? Why is it that just a drop of sewage water in a five-gallon bucket would make you go, oh, I'm not, no, I'm not drinking that? Every single act of evil and unrighteousness is infinitely offensive to an infinite God. The sin taints it all. And so only an infinite being is sufficient to pay for the infinite weight of sin. And so you can never repay God for the weight of your sin. If you are here this morning and that is your path to salvation, that you will try and do this thing where you just tip the scale so you've got a little bit more good than bad, you are in trouble because your sin is infinitely offensive and you are a finite creature trying to fill an infinite debt. And if Jesus was created a being that was made like the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you, then he is not infinite because he has a beginning. Something that has a beginning is not infinite. Which means that Jesus could not be the sacrificial lamb without blemish or spot. He has to be God, fully God, to pay the infinite price for your sin with his sacrificial blood. So let me just restate this point before we move on. Peter has given us a very subtle argument here for the divinity of Jesus, who because he is God, existed before the creation of the world, and because he is God, could bear the infinite weight of our sin. Now we need to ask, why was Jesus made manifest? Well, Peter tells us, for the sake of you, For the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. It was for your sake. It was for your sake that God did this. That Jesus was made manifest. So that through him you could come to believe in God. So that through him your debt against an infinitely holy God could be settled completely by the infinitely holy Son of God. And through Him, you have come to know God and also to see God. You have come to place your confidence in Him. If you want to know what God is like, then all you have to do is look to His Son, Jesus, who came for your sake so that you might be brought to God. John chapter 14, verse 7 says... Jesus, speaking to his disciples, he declares, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And in John chapter 1, verse 14, we read, The Word, that is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay, this poses a little problem for us because none of us have seen Jesus. Have you seen Jesus? Don't answer that. You haven't. And yet somehow through this God-man that we have never met or seen, we see God, the Father. 
Somehow, through Jesus, we see God. How does that work exactly? He's not physically here. Well, beneath the backdrop of these verses, are there birds in here again? Or is that outside? It's outside? Okay. It's fun when they get in here. Beneath the backdrop of verses 20 and 21, not explicitly stated but powerfully implied, what we have is the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is not with us in the flesh. That is true. Don't you ever wish that he was? None of us have actually met Jesus in the flesh. But through the Holy Spirit, you have access to the Son of God. Through the Holy Spirit, you know Jesus, and through Jesus, you know the Father. Do you see the chain of relationship here? So we believe in God through the work of Christ, which is not only to die on the cross for our sins and redeem us, but also the work that Jesus did to send the Holy Spirit, who Jesus said would be our helper, who would cause us to believe in God. So the Holy Spirit of God brings us into union with Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Holy Spirit makes Christ manifest not only to us, but in us, as the Spirit of God makes his home within us. So we have union with Christ, and his life becomes our life. And through that union with Christ, we share in the same faith and hope that Jesus himself had in God the Father. Now look again at verses 20 and 21 because we see a whole list of benefits that this union with Jesus gives to us as believers. Verse 20, the word manifest. That word could also be translated reveal or shown forth. So one benefit of our union with Christ is that Jesus reveals God the Father to us so we know what God is like. And verse 21 tells us that through him we are believers so that even our saving faith comes to us through our union with Christ as the Holy Spirit fills our lives and makes us like him. And since we're united to Jesus Christ, we are like him in his death and his resurrection. We actually share in his death and his resurrection. Next week we're going to do a baptism. And that's what that imagery is all about. You've been buried with Christ and raised to new life. Through the Holy Spirit, we even share in the glory which God gave to Jesus because we are united to him. That's a truth that is far too lofty for us to understand. Jesus speaks about this in John 16 and 17, that you have a share in God's glory through what Christ has done and the Spirit in you. Jesus was made manifest for our sake, which is to say that in love, God sent his son so that we as sinful people could literally take part in the life of Christ as we live our life. His life is mediated to us through the spirit of God, which Jesus left for his people to dwell in them and sustain them and lead them. Let me put a quote up here from Sinclair Ferguson who in his book on the Holy Spirit, I think, says this really well. This is too intense to try and read without making you look at it. The Spirit's coming 
inaugurates a communion with Christ in which the Spirit who dwelt in Christ now dwells on and in believers. The coming of the Spirit is the equivalent of the indwelling of Jesus. This is for the disciples' good, since it implies such a close union with Christ that he dwells in them and not merely with them. As Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 15.45, Christ has become life-giving Spirit. Having the Spirit is the equivalent, indeed the very mode, of having the incarnate, obedient, crucified, and resurrected, resurrected and exalted Christ indwelling us so that we are united to Him as He is united to the Father. So look, because of the precious blood of Jesus and Him being made manifest, we have faith and hope in God and access to God. That access is provided to us by the Spirit who makes us believers through union with Christ and gives to us all the benefits of Jesus Himself. All right, so now we're finally prepared to consider suffering and God's love. Give me another couple of minutes. I started my message mentioning the ark of redemption and the difficulty of our suffering and our trials. God raised Jesus from the dead and gave him glory. And our hope and our faith is in God, meaning we look to God to do for us the exact same thing that Jesus has done for his son, which is what we see here in verse 21. We can actually look all the way back in time, before history, before creation, and we can ask this question, why would God make creatures that would rebel against him and wound him in this way? Why would he do it? And we can trace the arc of the redemption of God's plan through history to the cross of Christ, and we can begin to see an astounding truth God's plan was always to unite to himself those who believe through the work of Christ from before the foundation of the world. Do you understand what I am telling you by saying this? God's plan was not merely to save a people from their sins, although that alone would have been good enough. It would have been worthy of all praise and honor. No, God's plan before the foundation of the world was to unite a people to himself in a way that Adam and Eve in the garden were never united to God. God dwelling in them, not merely with them. Peter is reminding us in verse 21 that since since Christ was raised from the dead after his trials and his suffering, and Christ is ours by faith, then we too can expect that God himself will carry us through every trial and difficulty and suffering, even to the point of raising us from the dead and solving all of our heartache and loneliness by dwelling within us in his spirit. So we can see the beauty of God's plan laid out for us. Do you see it? 
It begins before the foundation of the world with Jesus. It finds its historical climax in the death and resurrection of Jesus. It finds its ultimate fulfillment in the glorification of Jesus when he is crowned King of kings and Lord of lords, which is our eternal hope in the face of difficulty. How small, how small do your present sufferings appear? in light of this arc of God's redemptive plan. You know, even that pastor of that church in Kentucky or Tennessee whose daughter was shot to death, nine-year-old daughter, even that pastor can look up from the suffering of his grief and his trial and his utter heartbreak and he can see the ark of God's redemptive love over his life. And he can still rejoice. He is united to Christ and the God of all comfort will hold him fast just as the Father held the Son. This is the faith and hope that Peter has in mind in verse 21. It's not a small thing. It's an all-consuming thing. It's not a meager thing. It's a powerful thing. It's not a fleeting hope. It's a steadfast hope. If the evil of Satan and the horror of human history and the wickedness of our sin and even the crucifixion of God cannot thwart the plan of God to redeem and to save and to love, then there is nothing that you can do, no experience that you might walk through or sin that you might be guilty of that could undo what God has been doing from before the foundation of the world. So let's close with this brief reflection on God's motivation. It was love that drove God to do all of this. Love for you. It was love that drove him to save sinners. Love that drove him to unite people like you with God himself. Consider God's love for you. That Jesus, with perfect foreknowledge, would go to the cross. He came into the world in order to be the perfect lamb who would shed his blood. God did not spare his most beloved son for your, for your sake. Because of the greatness of his love, he embraced this plan. In love, then, God has already given to you all things because Christ is all and Christ is in all and there is nothing greater to give. What more could you ask of this God than what he has already given to show his love for you in Jesus? And because God is omnitemporal, guys, because God is omnitemporal, the sin that you're going to do tomorrow, it's already before him. The sin that you're going to do next month, he already knows it. The sin that you're going to commit next year, it's already been paid for. That doesn't excuse it. Don't do it. But it's already been paid for. Still, Christ is yours because God's love for you is unfailing from before the foundation of the world.